Yes, yeah, so it is my honor to introduce one of David's Tent's uh, leaders. He's one of our trustees, Mr. Eric Sandor. He, give it up for Mr. Eric Sandor. He is an absolutely brilliant man, and um, the more that I've gotten to, <laughs> well, yeah, <laughs> the more that I've gotten to know him, um, the more I'm just really amazed at the at Christ in him, really. And, and just walking through the, the journey with him in this last year has been a privilege, an absolute privilege, just to see his strength and the way that he's relied on God and the way that he has continued to love. Um, he's an incredible father. He's an awesome man. He's a businessman. He used to be a leader at Christ Church Tunbridge Wells, and he's been a champion of David's tent for the last several years, just walking right alongside us. He has outstanding wisdom. He's basically a genius. Um, we really, truly, truly love Eric, and what he's about to share now is, is quite sensitive. So if you feel like you need to um, have conversations, please take them right outside. Um, this is a space where I want uh, to really respect what Eric has to share because it's a, it's a heart journey and, and there's some incredible, powerful revelation that's going to come with it. So without further ado, I'm going to pass it on to Eric. Thank you. Thank you, Tiffany. And thank all of you for coming to, to listen today. I really, my prayer is that I'm a blessing to you today and uh, that the Lord blesses you. And... We wanted to talk about the question of suffering. And the question of suffering is talked about by Nicky Gumbel in his book, Searching Issues, as the single uh, most frequently raised objection to the Christian faith, suffering. And John Stott in his book, The Cross of Christ, wrote that the issue of suffering has been raised as the greatest challenge to the Christian faith in every generation. It's a, I don't know if you have this experience, but dealing with why does an all-powerful, all-loving God allow suffering? It's a difficult question. It's a question as old as the hills, and it's a really important question. And I'm really blessed that I believe God has armed me with the answer. And it's, it's really not my answer. I read it in a book called Suffering and the Love of God, and so we titled this talk um, to sort of honor the guy, Roger Forster, who wrote that book. He's not very well known, but it's an incredible book. And it analyzes the book of Job. And what I want to share with you today is that answer that I believe is true of how an all-powerful, all-loving God can allow suffering. And I want to share with you the outworkings of that that became an entirely new worldview for me and my wife with all kinds of implications for how we live as sons and daughters of the king of the universe. And as part of that, I want to share some of our personal experience as well. Many of you will know that um, God often does something with you and you have an experience, and then subsequently, you kind of get a theology for it. Often experience precedes understanding and theology, and you have to wrestle it out with the Lord to understand what truth he's actually showing you. And so that was very much my experience, too. And so I want to share with you some of my experience. The quick answer to the question, how does an all-powerful, all-loving God allow suffering? And the reason it's a difficult question is people say, well, is he all-powerful but not all-loving? He, he could smash 
all suffering and evil out of existence, but he just doesn't want to? Or is he all loving but not all powerful? He really wants to, he just can't. The answer is God's love reigns supreme over his power. He's loving in how he exercises power. So how does an all-loving, all-powerful God rule the universe? He gives power away. That's, that's what you do. If you're all-loving and you're all-powerful, and your essence is love, because the Bible says God is love. It never says God is power. God's referred to as uh, God Almighty, which means the one from whom all power flows. So the reality of God is his essence is love. He's loving in everything he does. And so how he rules the universe is he gives power away. And I'll unpack that a bit and how that's talked about in Job and what implications that has. And I'll, I'll explain that more. Okay, my story starts about five years ago. I was on holiday with my family in Italy and um, I, I just turned 40 and I was looking out at beautiful hills of Umbria in Italy and I was praying and I was saying to the Lord, you know, I, I feel like I'm just floating along on a river of life. I'm not making choices about what I really want to do in life. I'm not living deliberately and intentionally. And I was praying to the Lord, you know, I want to be a sharp weapon in your hands. I don't want to be this blunt instrument that can't be guided terribly precisely. I want to be sharp, and I want to live deliberately and intentionally. And this was a prayer God had put in my heart. What you'll find is, is God starts to stir things in your heart because he's preparing you for what will come. I obviously had no idea what would come. And when I said to the Lord, I want to live more deliberately, a little whisper came in my mind, and he said, why don't you start with what you eat? Living more deliberately. And I thought, okay, I can kind of see the wisdom in that. That's a choice I make three times a day, what I eat. So, okay. And he said, you know, why don't you give up alcohol and coffee and meat and dairy and sugar? And I was like, well, what else is there? <laughs> That's like my diet. And I kind of worked it out and I realized it was sort of the vegan diet without alcohol and coffee and, and desserts. I thought, okay, well, I'll do this. And um, I kept that diet for seven months. I was a vegan without those other things. I was wrestling with the Lord. I was grabbing hold of the Lord, and I was saying, I, I want to be blessed. I want you to change me. I want my life to be a bit different, and I want to live differently. And within a few months on this diet, I decided... The Lord sort of came to me in one of my prayer times and said, I've given you everything you need. And I thought, whoa, I like the sound of that. Maybe I don't need my job then. And so I started to think, all right, I want to leave my job. I want to make a change. And during this diet, I got very into being a living sacrifice. You know, Romans 12 being a living sacrifice, and I must decrease, and he must increase. And everyone I met, I talked to them about, you know, being a living sacrifice, laying it all down, and I must decrease, and he must increase. And then he started to talk to me about, he started to ask me, Eric, what do you want? 
And I was kind of a bit confused. And I was thinking, you know, Lord, I want your guidance. And he said, no, 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 no. What's in your heart? What do you want? And I was a part of a, a group, and they were talking about being a servant of the Lord. And this notion of being a servant was kind of rankling with me. It wasn't resonating with me. And I took it to the Lord, and I said, yeah, is there something wrong with me? I, you know, in my pride, I don't like this idea of being a servant? Or what is it here, Lord? He said, you're not a servant. You're a son. And I thought, oh, okay. You know, sons know their daddy's business. Servants, you tell what to do. And when we're little, we get told what to do. But as you grow in faith and you grow in intimacy with the Lord, he's looking to you to behave like a son and daughter, not like a servant. And he started to show me that when the Holy Spirit works through us, we're not like a hollow tube that the Holy Spirit just expresses himself through. The Holy Spirit mingles with our spirit, and that's a unique expression of Christ in you, the hope of glory. It's unique, that expression of Christ in you. It's a mingling of your spirit and the Holy Spirit. And I really started to to learn about being a new creation. I went through this sort of death and living sacrifice, and he started saying, actually, Eric, who you are is significant. You bring something to the table. You collaborate with the Holy Spirit. That's a unique expression. I want more of you, Eric. That, that was a surprise. Because you're always told less of me, more of him. But you see, you die to yourself, but then you're resurrected and you're a new creation. And you're a son and you're a daughter. And I started thinking about the desires of my heart, that phrase. How many of you have heard of the phrase, he'll give you the desires of your heart? How many of you know the precondition for receiving the desires of your heart? Look, isn't that interesting? I know. The precondition for God giving you the desires of your heart is if you delight yourself in him. And, and so I was finding myself in this place. I was delighting myself in him, worshiping him, loving him. I was coming out of my job then. This is a year later, summer of 2013. And I, I really had everything. I was, I was in the process of leaving my job. That process had come through. And I was a new creation. I was delighting myself in the Lord. He was raising up this new man. And I was jogging. It was a sunny day. And I was praising him, and the Lord came and whispered in my ear and said, Would you still love me if you lost everything like Job did? And I thought, Lord, of course I love you. Where else is there to go? I've got nowhere to go. That was my response. But the truth is, and I knew this, that I didn't really know the answer to that question. We don't really know the answer to how we'll respond to suffering until it comes. And it was not long, a couple of months after, uh, I, I had that question from the Lord of, would you still love me if you lost everything like Job did? That we got the diagnosis of my wife uh, having uh, breast cancer. It was very progressed throughout her body. Through no fault of hers, she'd been several times to get checked, and they kept sending her away, saying there was no problem. Um, I started to look into Job, 
And that's how I got hold of this book, Suffering and the Love of God by Roger Forster, which was, which was given to me. And I began to get this new world view. And at the beginning of Job, God sets this context for the question. And he, he's bragging about Job. Wouldn't that be awesome for God to be bragging about you? I think he does brag about us. The book of Job is perhaps the oldest book of the Bible. So this question is very, very old. And God says about Job, he was blameless and upright. And the word in Hebrew he uses is like, this guy was the real deal. He was the full package. He lacked nothing. And it's as though at the beginning of the book of Job, they're saying, there once was a guy. He, he was really very close to perfect. And he really loved God. The word is feared in your translations of the Bible. There's a bad translation. The word really means to revere, to be in awe of. He was awestruck with God. He held him in such high esteem. And God is bragging about Job to Satan. And Satan's answer to God is immediate. And it, it's attacking God at the core of God's identity. Because that's what Satan does. He attacks at the point of our identity. God's identity is love. And Satan says to God, he doesn't really love you. It's impossible to love God. Job just reveres you because of what you do for him. You see, God has the billionaire's problem a billionfold. You know, the billionaire doesn't know who their friends are. Do people really like them? Or do they just want them for their money? God has that multiplied out a billion times, right? How does he know if you really love him? How do I know if I really love him? And so Satan attacks God. He says, Job doesn't really love you. Satan's sort of axiom for the universe is might is right, that the universe is all about power. God is just about your power. That's all it is. And God's saying, no, there is a man, Job, he really does love me. And the universe isn't all about power. The universe is all about love. And that's the argument that's played out in the book of Job. Is the universe all about love? Or is the universe all about power? And is it possible, truly, to love God? Now, there's another context at the very beginning of the, the book of Job, chapter 1, that's really important for the answer that I presented earlier, that God gave power away. When, when God is boasting about Job, it says that the angels came before God and Satan was with them. Does that sound strange? Is that the picture you have? What he's presenting is a spiritual reality that there's like a heavenly council and this is referred to in the Psalms, that the Lord provides, presides in his heavenly council. He gives judgments amongst the gods. He's referred to as the Lord of hosts, which means he's the Lord over all the principalities and powers. And in this passage, the angels are there with God, and Satan is there with God. The reality is, God set up a government for the universe, 
and he empowered all his angels. And he gave them roles. You might have heard of principalities and powers and dominions and thrones. Those terms communicate a reality that these spiritual beings have an area of authority that they operate over. Where did they get that authority from? Where did they get that power from? God set up a government for the universe, empowered his angels, and a third of them rebelled. We call them demons now. They still have the power God gave them. Because if he took the power back, were they really empowered to begin with? If I say you have a choice, A or B, and you choose A, I say, ah, 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 you can't have A. You had no choice, did you? You had no choice. So God in his integrity, he empowers his creation. And he continues to administer the universe through those he empowered, the angels and the demons. And they continue to have the throne that he gave them. Right? Does it make sense to you? Have you ever heard this taught? Right. So the spiritual reality is there's like this heavenly council where God is presiding. And there are all these angels and demons with their own free wills battling it out. The universe is a battle of will and advocacy. And we know Jesus advocates for us at the throne. With this system, all manner of things happen that God doesn't want. God does not always get his way. You get your way in your life, don't you? I get my way, because we have free will. Multiply that out by eight billion people on earth, several billion demons, you have a very complex system, don't you? A much more complex system than any of us can understand. And this is very much part of the answer that God brings to Job at the end. But with that, with that system means you get your way, I get my way. And through the journey with my wife, friends of mine would come up and kind of hold my shoulder and say, you know, don't worry, God is in complete control. I'd say, no, he is not in complete control. God is on the throne. He reigns over all, but he has empowered all of us. And our choices matter. And they have consequences. Because the universe, the bedrock of the universe that the scientists look at and say, there's chaos, right? There's chaos at the bedrock of the universe. It means things are undetermined. That's an environment that supports freedom. God set the universe up this way so that we are free, so that we can choose to love. Because without freedom, you cannot have love. Love cannot be compelled. It has to be chosen from a place of complete freedom. So the universe is an environment that supports freedom as well as randomness. And there's a battle raging, a battle of wills and a battle of advocacy. And we're a part of that battle that's going on. Let me leave Job for a bit, go back to some of my story. Uh, at the end of that summer, 2013, after God had whispered to me about Job, I was on a business trip in Hong Kong, and my wife phoned me up and said, 
I have cancer. And it was about midnight in Hong Kong, and I, I was so afraid about losing my wife. And I laid in my bed, and I wailed, and I cried out to the Lord through the night, sounds I'd never made before, because I was racked with fear at losing my wife. You see, I'd always grown up thinking that God probably wanted something different for me than I wanted for myself. My picture of God, my wrong God concept, was he was a bit of a spoil sport. He wanted me to sacrifice things. He didn't want what I wanted. And I was afraid she was going to die. And I came back to England and got together with the leadership team of Christ Church, and we were praying together. And the Lord whispered to me, the future is not written. Emma could live or Emma could die. And I, I, all I heard was, the, the, the future's not written. I can do something. Emma could live. And this was while I was battling. I've just presented to you this sort of, the story of Job and that worldview. I didn't quite have it at this time. I was wrestling it out. But I thought, okay, if the future's not written, how do we write the future? And it's, oh, we write the future through our prayers. And, and I had this conviction that I needed a community of people praying with me that Emma would live, and that Emma could live and would live. And so I, I said, right, we're going to get some, some friends together. We're going to start praying. And the next morning, I, I got a few guys together, and I started this Friday morning prayer meeting that's still going. Um, this men, Matt, Matt's there was one of the original guys with me. And there were five of us, and I was still afraid. And I was crying out to the Lord, my eyes closed. And the image of hills in the distance came into my mind. It was like a sunset over mountains. And I raised my arm up and I said, where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. And I, through saying that, I was reminding myself that I, I wasn't alone. I, when I looked up to the hills, I was thinking, where is my help? I need some help. And I was reminded my help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. And out of my belly came a roar, a roaring proclamation. And I said, no weapon formed against me can prosper. That's what I did at the prayer meeting. I had no idea. I had no experience of making a proclamation like that. The Holy Spirit moved in me and I went with it and I made this declaration. And I felt like clouds scatter. It was like I stood up to a bully and said, there is nothing for you here. And he was chased away that proclamation. Ephesians says part of the role of the church is to make the manifold wisdom of God known to the heavenly realms. When you worship and you declare truths, it's condemning the enemy at the same time as it's setting you free. So I declared this. It's a promise, right? 
no weapon formed against you shall prosper. Now, what I came to learn, this point about experience and theology, what I came to learn, I felt different after I made this declaration. I believed it. I had this powerful experience. No weapon formed against me can prosper. Do you know what happened? I became the man. No weapon formed against me can prosper. I was changed. I took that truth, that promise that was out there for all of us. And in the crisis of the moment, I grabbed the promise. And I took it. And I said, that is mine. I am the man that no weapon formed against me can prosper. And I had no more fear from that moment. I thought, what do I have to be afraid of if no weapon formed against me can prosper? And I became reckless. And I realized how Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were when they were, the, the enemy, or Nebuchadnezzar was trying to intimidate them and said, you won't worship your God. We're going to throw you in the furnace. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said, our God will save us. But even if he doesn't, get out of my face. I'm not going to be intimidated by you. I don't care what you say, what you do. They were reckless. They entertained the possibility that God would not save them. Do you get it? This attitude of recklessness. Now, I could not have taken this progression had it not been for that year before that I told you about. That process of really dying to myself, being a new creation, really delighting myself in the Lord and finding this whole new relationship with him so that when the storm hit, I, I was really already delighting myself in him. And I was then trying to figure out, what do we do with this? So we fought for a year for my wife's health and really surprised the doctors. She was declared clear of cancer a year later. And it was a victory and God had healed her. And then we had a year of, you know, joyful celebration as a family. My kid's mummy was better. My wife was better. I had learned this amazing worldview. And I haven't sure talked to you the best part about the worldview yet. And I thought, God's really blessed me. He's changed me. And then, year three, her cancer markers in her blood started to show some little cells, some little increase. It was creeping up. It was creeping up. That was from uh, September 2015 that started. And that's okay. The doctors weren't terribly concerned, changing some of her medication. It was all pretty relaxed, under control, nothing to worry about. Meanwhile, I was the man that no weapon formed against me can prosper. God had changed me. And I really understood how David could say, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. <clears throat> I really do not have fear anymore. It's honest truth. I was so afraid at the beginning and probably was very fearful throughout my life up until that point. In Easter of last year, sort of May, <clears throat> my 10-year-old daughter Lily had heart failure. 
And I was with her for two weeks in the Royal Brompton Hospital in London. And her heart was functioning at 25% of its normal, normal function. And as I sat with my daughter in hospital and, and I saw her suffering, <clears throat> and she was crying and having to deal with all these firsts, all these difficult experiences of having blood tests and having jabs in her legs and <clears throat> all of this stuff going on. Just take a little drink of water so you can hear me a bit better. <clears throat> so I was watching my 10-year-old daughter suffer through all these things and I realized I felt so much pain for her. I felt all of her pain. I'd never had this experience as a father before that, that I could feel all this pain for my child. And I was crying to the Lord at my daughter's bedside and sharing my pain with him. And he gave me this revelation. He said, Eric, if you feel the pain of your child, don't you think I feel your pain? Don't you think I feel the pain of my children? I had this revelation that God was feeling my pain at that same time that I was feeling it. He's a better father than I am. He's much more capable of compassion than I am. And so I cried with him and I felt him crying with me. That was really my first experience of, of that kind of pain and, and sharing that pain with the Lord. Previously, that first year where we were battling for my wife's health, I viewed it as suffering. Now I don't really think it was so much suffering. It was, it was the battle. Um, let me return to Job for a bit then. So Job suffered so awfully through the book. He lost all his belongings, he lost all his family, his status. He was really reduced to just a heap of flesh on the floor. And he was tormented with the question of why. Why me? Why have I suffered so unfairly? Because the theology of the time was, you only, you only had bad things happen to you if you were a bad person. Bad things didn't happen to good people. That was their theology. And so he was saying, these things should not be happening to me because I'm a good guy. This is not fair. And he wanted to confront God and say to God, you know, tell me, tell me how, how this is just in your eyes. And the amazing thing is, after this ridiculous extreme suffering that Job suffered, God shows up at the end of the book of Job and comes to Job. Do you know he doesn't put his arm around Job and say, I'm so sorry. He says, stand up and be a man. Don't feel sorry for yourself. Grab hold of the power I gave you. You don't understand the universe. And the last five chapters of Job, God lays out first the complexities of the natural world. And how it's completely beyond his ability to understand. And then he talks about the realities of the unseen world, the spiritual world. It talks about terms like the Leviathan and the Behemoth. But what it's conveying is there are violent, 
chaotic spiritual powers at work that only God can bring to heal. And they cause all kinds of damage. And there's a battle raging, and there's collateral damage. You know, innocent people get hurt in wars, don't they? They get a bit too close to the action and they get hurt. Now we know that some suffering is because of our sin. We all get that, right? And we all get that we're in a fallen world and that's the standard answer most of us learn about suffering. And that's what we talk about when our friends say, well, how can an all-powerful, all-loving God allow suffering? The truth is, God does not always get his way. God is not in complete control. So let's stop this nonsense blaming God for everything that happens. He empowered his creation, you and me. That's why he came to Job and said, stand up and be a man. Be a woman. Make the hard choices. Because you know what? He empowered all of us too. Didn't he? We have these wills that we can exercise. We write our own futures. As we delight ourselves in the Lord, he's interested in our desires. And he works in the arena of the desires of our heart. And when I, in that prayer meeting, in a moment, shifted from being a fearful, sniveling wreck to this quite ridiculous, shouty man, I was doing what God was telling Job to do. I, I, I again, at that moment, had no grid for this. I didn't understand it. But that's what standing up means. It's grabbing hold of the promises that we have in Christ. Now, Job was an amazing man. And at the end of his story, it said that he, he was restored everything that he lost. And he got double what he had before. Who of you have heard of the double portion, of getting a double portion? Does any of you know the precondition for getting a double portion? It's funny, isn't it? We go for the good stuff, and we never get taught about the preconditions. Delight yourself in the Lord. He'll give you the desires of your heart. In Romans chapter 8, 17, it says, Because we're all children of God, we're all heirs of God. But if we share in his sufferings, we are co-heirs with Christ. Now, Christ is called the firstborn. And we are the church of the firstborn. Jesus was the new Adam, the first of the new creation, the firstborn. In Jewish tradition, the firstborn got a double portion of the inheritance. So if you had three kids, you divided your inheritance in four. The oldest got two shares, a double portion, and the other two got one share. Being the oldest, the firstborn, meant you got a double portion. Romans says we're co-heirs with Christ, meaning we are treated as though we are the firstborn if we share in his sufferings. Now, from my experience, what I believe that means, sharing in his sufferings, I think that means standing firm and worshiping him in the midst of the pain, in the midst of the suffering. And you know, when you... When you really taste and see that the Lord is good, when you delight yourself in him, you're so grabbing hold of him, <clears throat> you're determined not to let anyone or anything take that away. That's the Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego attitude. Go ahead, do what you want. You're not going to stop me. 
loving my Father in heaven and worshiping him for who he is. He's good. His love endures forever. I think as we do that in the midst of suffering, that's the precondition. That's my interpretation of sharing his sufferings. I believe we get a double portion that way. Isn't that cool? Now, also in the book of Job, he prophesies, or the writer of the book of Job prophesies about Jesus. You've heard the phrase, I know that my Redeemer liveth, or I know that my Redeemer lives. It's from the book of Job. And Job had this sense that there was a Redeemer who would come and and save and redeem everything, restore everything. I want to say a few words about Jesus. You know that heavenly council that, that we've talked about exists, where all these demons and angels are kind of advocating to God, saying it should be this way, it should be that way. This is what should happen. That's what should happen. All the people on earth advocating this way and that way. And when we're in Christ, we jump to the front of all that throng, right next to the throne of God, and we whisper to him, what about this? Shouldn't this happen? We get to jump the queue. We get to overcome all of that noise in the heavenly council through Jesus. And he's on the other side of God, whispering in the other ear, I agree, don't you think? Wouldn't that be good? It's amazing what we have in Jesus. Jesus came, you know, he said, to destroy the work of the enemy. With this, with this framework of the universe, this worldview that I have, I started to get very interested in what Jesus did when he came and he died on the cross. And we get, again, taught a lot about a truth that he died for us. And we get taught a lot about salvation. And we're often told, you know, if there was just one person on earth, he would have died for you. And he died to forgive you your sins. What he did, and this is a theology called Christos Victor. It's thinking about the work of Jesus on the cross as far more. It is, it is making us, it's forgiving us and it's freeing us. It's far more. He makes a way for us into heaven. My wife is in heaven. Their mummy is in heaven because Jesus did it first. That's amazing. But the other thing he did is he overturned this system in the universe. He conquered the universe through what he did. It's amazing what he did. It's, it, yes, it's salvation and it sets each of us individually free. But he conquered all of these principalities and powers and they're all just under his foot now. Christos Victor. That's who our Jesus is. He's huge. He's huge. And now when we lose someone we love, we know they're in heaven because Jesus made a way for them. And when we celebrate Easter, as we did a few months ago, we think, isn't it so awesome that Jesus was resurrected? Because my wife is too. And we will be too. So I, I told you about my daughter in uh, the summer of last year. And uh, she made a miraculous recovery over the months that followed. Last David's tent, she was here wearing a defibrillator, a wearable defibrillator that she wore 24 hours a day. And her prayer was that she would be able to take this thing off 
before her 11th birthday, which is September 14th. And about a week before her birthday, the doctors phoned and said, we think Lily can get rid of the wearable defibrillator now. Yeah. <laughs> And she was on warfarin. Warfarin's a drug that thins your blood, makes it, she couldn't play hockey, couldn't do a lot of the things she wanted to do and loved to do. And she said to Emma, my wife and I, I saw this picture of, of my warfarin bracelet. You wear a bracelet in case you have any medical emergencies. The doctors know you're on warfarin. You might have very thin blood. She said, I had this picture when I was praying that my warfarin bracelet broke, broke off. It was like a crack that came through the middle of the word warfarin, and my bracelet fell off. And I think Jesus is gonna, gonna break off my warfarin bracelet, she said. And Emma and I said, that would be wonderful, honey. <laughs> Let's pray for that. And a week later, when, when Lily, my daughter and I were in the, the hospital, the doctor said, we think you can give up the warfarin now. So that was um, that was that chapter, and uh, we we still continue to pray for Lily's complete healing. She's on a, a few more meds still, uh, but her heart is functioning normally. Praise God. And my wife, uh, her decline started um, September last year, kind of out of the blue. The doctors were still very confident. And um, the, the cancer had moved to her brain. And uh, she passed away uh, November 25th, nine months ago yesterday. And throughout that time, I was who I am. I was so confident she would be healed. She was so full of faith that she would be healed. We'd been there before. And God was in the fight with us. Do you know what I mean by that? When you're really praying for something and you feel God in the fight with you, you feel, I'm on the winning side here because <laughs> God is fighting with me. This is how we felt. And we had amazing experiences through that process of battling for her to live. And we really believed she would live. And she didn't. She died. And, and we were heartbroken. I met my wife when I was 18 years old. I met her a few days into Bristol University. And I was going out with her like a day after I met her. <laughs> so I didn't waste any time. I saw her and I said, she's the one. And we went out together for six years and then we were married for 20 years. My wife and I are woven together. We grew up together. She's my best friend. And the pain of losing her was so far beyond anything I ever could have imagined, beyond anything I could describe to you now. I don't expect you to be able to imagine it because I couldn't. I think these things, once they happen to you, you, you experience them in a way that other people can't, can't really sympathize with. And in the midst of that, we, we, again, had people praying all over the world. And the day Emma passed away, 
the moment after she passed away, I stood at the end of her bed and I worshiped the Lord. And I wrote an email to everyone who was praying for us. And I said, the Lord is good and his love endures forever. That is my song and I will continue to sing it because it's true. It is true. Sometimes things happen that we don't quite understand. And you know, this thing about healing, I, I have so much faith for healing that God always wants to heal. And I will always pray for everybody who needs healing. And I will always expect them to be healed. I will not stop in that. But probably the viewpoint I've acquired is that it's more complex than we make it out to be. We kind of come up with simple little formulae about how do you make a healing? What do you need to do? And I think this universe, these forces at work, are more complex than that. But we have assurance and we have security that God is good and his love endures forever and he's on the throne. And I've shed so many tears in the last nine months and felt such pain and I always share it with the Lord, like I did in the room, in the hospital room with my daughter Lily. And from that experience next to my daughter Lily, I learned he's feeling my pain now too, and he's sharing in it. So whenever I have tears, I direct them to him and I share them with him. And when I worship in the tent or, or at church, and I get to that intimate place with the Lord, where I open up my heart to him and I'm loving him. What I find in my heart is heartbreak and pain. When my heart is cracked open in worship because I'm being intimate with him, I cry. Not because I'm thinking about my wife, but just because there's a store of pain and suffering in my heart. A wound that needs to be healed. And when I draw close to the Lord, he's opening it up because he wants to heal it. And I know that every tear I shed and every tear my children shed is on the road to healing. It's a step in the right direction. And I've learned that there is nothing wrong with pain except that it hurts. That's the only thing wrong with it. But otherwise, there's nothing wrong with pain. You know, my philosophy before... I had this experience and this changed worldview was probably try to avoid pain, avoid risk, because I was afraid, maximize your pleasure in light of these other two things. I think a lot of us live in that way where we try to avoid pain. Some things are painful. We have to travel through them. The Lord travels through them with us. He carries us. His tenderness is overwhelming. I pray that each of you gets a revelation and a touch of how tender the Lord is. He is not at all rough-handed. My goodness. He comes around you so gently. He's right there by your side. And he understands the way you feel. And whatever you feel, whatever pain you have, he feels it with you. And he wants to walk with you and help you through that healing. 
But the road to that healing is through the pain because the pain is real and it hurts, but that's okay. Travel through it with God. Face those broken places. Allow the Lord to bind them up. He's so good and his love endures forever. And we get to enjoy him and delight ourselves in him forever. Again, we, we have no concept for that. How am I doing for time? A few more minutes. So, the worldview. What, what does it say about us? There's this battle of wills, this battle of advocacy in the universe. God said to Job, take responsibility for your life, didn't he? Stand up. Start to choose and live. Be a man. Be a woman. Make the hard choices. Take responsibility. I love this worldview because we're empowered and we have freedom to choose and to act. I love this worldview despite the fact that there's a lot of suffering and mourning and problems and evil seems to thrive. I love this worldview because we're free to love, we're free to show mercy, and we forge the future through our will to act. You all will write the future through your prayers, through your decisions. We have responsibility. And too often in our churches, and we've been brought up to think we need to ask God's direction for every little thing. You are not servants, and you are not robots. The Lord wants you to exercise your will, your wants, and to act like sons and daughters and take responsibility. Let's get a new grid for how the Lord is going to partner with us. It's not, where do you want me to go now? I'm a blank canvas. I'm waiting for the instruction. That's, that's fine. Okay, that is fine. I know many of you will be in that place. So I, don't want to, I don't want any condemnation to come on you. We all have that phase of life when we have that. But I want to express a reality that that is not a constant mode of living. That is not a way of life. That is a season, okay? And you're all going to grow up into a different season where the Lord starts to want you to be understanding who you are, what you want, and you start to choose because he empowered you. Isn't that friggin' awesome? It's amazing, this worldview. When the Lord said to me, the future is unwritten, I thought, this is awesome. I don't have to be afraid of the future. How can you be afraid of the future if it's not written yet? You're going to be afraid of a hypothetical? Or are you going to start to address yourself to what it is you want? You're going to start to leverage what Jesus did for you and take it to the throne of God and say, Lord, your will be done. Because I used to think that prayer was a sacrifice. Not my will, but yours. Like God wanted something other than what I wanted. Now I know <laughs> I want God's will or my will. I don't want anybody else's will. I will not accept anybody else's will. That's the spirit you can have. 
I always want God's will. He knows best. Sometimes I might get my will and that'll be a problem. Sometimes it won't be a problem because God's working through the desires of my heart and he's using the force of my will because I'm a part of his family and I'm building his kingdom. And he cooperates with me. And Christ in me is unique, like Christ in you is unique. You know, we have so much more of a role to play than you think. So much more. Which is why the identity of sons and daughters is so important. So my prayer is, we grow up, we stand, and be a man, be a woman. We make choices. We ask the Lord for wisdom, and we understand the future is not written. That's a motivator to pray. The future is not written. Let's write the future with our prayers. Thank you all so much for taking the time to listen to me today. I really do pray it's been a blessing to you and has armed you with some, some new things that can help you live differently, answer questions about suffering differently. I know that the, um, the prayer ministry team is here and are going to be available. Um, stand up if you're part of the prayer ministry team and you want to cut, maybe work your way down to the front. If you're, if you're battling through a painful situation and you want to cooperate with that process of facing the pain and walking through the pain and allowing God to do it with you, come and get prayed for. Just as an act to say, do you know what? I'm going to face the direction of the pain. I'm going to trust the Lord. He's going to heal me as I do that. Make that step. Come and get prayed for for that. Or if you're someone else who you've been stirred by this and you, you want the Lord to stir in you more desires of your heart. When you hear me talk about the desires of your heart, you think, oh, I don't know what I want. That's great. Come and be prayed for that the Lord would start to work in the arena of the desires of your heart so they can start to guide you a new way rather than like a go here, go there in the old Abrahamic model. All right. Well, no. Yeah.